Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 1, in verses 6 through 9 today. Thanks, Sue. Now, if you'll excuse me, I, I have a little bit of a sore throat, so I probably won't get quite as excited. That might be a relief to some of you. Um, but I will take a stop once in a while to get a drink of water, so I'm just letting you know. Now, you heard me say Joshua 1, 6 through 9. I feel like I'm really loud. Um, but uh, you say, Chris, really you're going to take it four verses at a time? Like, do you have any idea how big Joshua is? I do, and I promise we will not continue at this pace, four verses a Sunday. However, what I want us to do is recognize what's happening here. What's going on is that this is the beginning of a book, and that means that as we understand this communication, it will purport us into the rest of the book. It will help us see the rest of the things that are going on here. Also, for a tip for Bible readers, if you look at your, your text here, you know that the first uh, nine verses, well, two through nine, is speech. Whenever you come across speech, when you're reading your Bible, your narrator is trying to slow you down. There's a purpose for using quotations. It's giving you very specific words that they were wanting us to realize and hear and pay attention to. Not only that, these speech, this speech right here is not just anyone's speech, but it's God's speech to Joshua. And so it's very important that we understand this. So that gives you a little bit of a reason why I'm only taking these four verses today to help us slow down and make sure we understand this because it certainly will help us understand how Joshua was to approach Canaan and how the people were to obey and follow God as they were going into this land. Let's read our passage, Joshua 1, 6 through 9. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and, do, and courageous, and do not be afraid, frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your, your word that teaches us the truth, which corrects us, which instructs us, which gives us what we need sufficient for us to do good works to glorify the Father. Sufficient, Lord, to show us our need and turn from our rebellion and have your Spirit work in us and show us the truth of Jesus Christ. Your Scriptures are sufficient to work in us mightily so that we might obey you. We ask for them to point to you this morning and that we would, with repentance and faith, enjoy you. We may we obey you, Lord. We thank you for this time, and we ask that you would break down stony hearts 
And Lord, that you would do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. If you missed last week, uh, one main thing happened. There's a lot of stuff that was said, but God gave Joshua one main command, one imperative in all verses 1 all the way through 5. They made up two words, but it's a singular idea. Arise, go over this Jordan. What follows, where we're going to get into today, 6 through 9, is a lot more imperative speech, or those are more commands for us. But it is not the next steps in the command. It's not as though arise, go over the Jordan with step 1, and now we're going to get step 2, step 3, and step 4. That's not what's happening. It's more like this next section supports the main command because the first command is so important, they've got to figure out how to do this, specifically Joshua here. God has given Joshua the main command, and now he will give him more commands that will help him do the main one properly. To help us understand this, let me give us a human example. Um, Now, an analogy will never be perfect, but sit with me. This will help us understand how to read these verses. Let's say my wife asks me to do a near impossible task. She asks me to bake a birthday cake for my daughter, my three-year-old specifically, Evie. And in their presence, she made me, you know, like, yeah, I think you need to do this because I'm going to take the kids to Williamsburg on this day and you need to make this cake. And by some ridiculously foolish notion of mine, I said, yes. Now, Let's take this. She told me to make the cake, and the next day she gets ready, and she's ready to go. I know what I'm supposed to do. You have one command, Chris, bake the birthday cake. She's going to come alongside and make sure I understand this. She's going to come to me and say, you have everything that you need. I left you all the stuff. Everything is there, all the different ingredients. You've got the mixer. You've got the oven. You've got all the different things that you need. Bake the birthday cake. You can do this. But then she looks at me straight in the eyes and says, please be responsible, bake this cake for your children. We already said we would, and this is what's going to happen. Please be responsible, bake the cake for your children. Then she comes in closer and grabs my arm and says, please be responsible. I left you lots of instructions. The recipe card is there. Follow it. You must follow it if you are to have good success in making this cake. And so, you know, maybe some of you don't know this, but... uh, My wife and I have a very good relationship. She knows me quite well. And she happens to know that I like to do stuff my way. Um, And she happens to know that I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to baking a birthday cake, specifically for my daughter Evelyn, a pink princess birthday cake. So this is what the task was at hand. But she said to me, this is kind of how it goes, she says, bake the birthday cake. But then she says, you must be responsible to follow, be very careful to follow the instructions that I gave to you. I have everything that you need written out there. Review it before you start. Then get some tape. Tape it to the cabinets. Make sure you have it in front of you all the time. Then you almost practically need to memorize this thing. And if you do, please be responsible. If you do, you will make Evelyn the cake of her dreams. Again, like I said in the background, my wife knows my propensity to do it my way. Or, or, or the way that it says, hey, it'll be all right. I can make this work. But some of you have a hard time believing that a, such, a, such a cake could exist. But I assure you, it does. Now, not only was it a good cake, but the, uh, the customer was very satisfied. <laughs> to the point where I thought she was going to get her face right into it right there. You can see. Oh, never mind. Yeah. 
No, I'd love to tell you that I made that cake, but uh, that would be a lie. <laughs> Kristen made that cake for Evelyn for her third birthday, and she did a great job. But, like I said, no analogy is ever perfect, you know. It never, never completely gets it. Let's take it, though, for a moment and say this was a true scenario. Let's go back for a moment and pretend that this was the starting point. Chris, bake the birthday cake. That's the main command. She's given me one major task, but then she's come alongside of me, again, with one firm but loving reminder, be responsible. Be responsible because it's very important. It's a difficult task. But please be responsible to be careful to follow the recipe that I gave you. In the opening verses here in Joshua, God gave Joshua a command. That's what we learned last week. Go arise over and go, to, go over, to the, over the Jordan, to the promised land. But starting in verse 6, we get more commands, more imperatives. But we're not going on to like the next steps. The first one wasn't arise, and then we get the next step and the next step. It's kind of like what my wife did in our hypothetical situation. God is giving Joshua that firm but loving reminder, Joshua, you must be strong and courageous because you are going in and you're going to cause these people to inherit the promised land. But then it's like God gets closer to him and says, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do it according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. You see, God knows the propensity of the human heart. He knows that we want to do it our own way. He knows that our, our original father said that. He said, you know what? I want to do it my way. I will eat this, this fruit. Not God's way. I'm going to do it my way. And he knows, the, again, the propensity of our heart to pull away from what he has told us to do. And what he does here, even though that he knows that John, Joshua is going into a place where the people are more numerous, where they are more technologically savvy, where they possibly have superior weaponry and certainly position, he is saying, you are going to need this, my words to you, my promise of my presence to you. This is one of the most dangerous situations that you've faced. And we all get this. This is a good command for us to hear. Be strong and courageous. And as a, good, as a true Christian, we know that our courage and our strength is not bound up in our own will to do so. It's not like we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and really be courageous and strong. And God is glad that we're on his team. Rather, we know the strength and the victory itself, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, is through Christ. So we know that the victory is only won through him. And so this is a good reminder for us. When anxieties and cares and suffering happen around you, don't bear it, brother. Don't bear it, sister. Cast your anxieties on him. Being strong and courageous doesn't mean doing it in and of yourself. We know this because if, if you were like me, what I'd like to see is actually verse 6 flow right into verse 9 because it makes so much sense. So I'm, I'm going to read it to you. This is a, a one continuous thought. Be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I mean, that's good stuff. The whole thing is grounded in the presence of God. Doesn't anyone else think it's a nice flow? It kind of works really well. And plus, again, like I said, it, it grounds our courage and our uh, strength in the presence of Yahweh. I, I, I'm like, I can't get much better than that. This is so good. But what, what is 7 and 8 doing in there? Like, why would he put 7 and 8 smack dab in the middle of these commands? 
in verses 7 and 8, God is going to do something. He is going to introduce the most important concept for Joshua to grasp as he leads the people into the land. It is the necessity of doing the law. This is at the heart of what God is telling him to do and how to do it. Now, some of you may have noticed here that this is a little bit bigger than just doing certain things. And, and by the way, as it is just as much as it's important to be strong and courageous to fight against these armies and these battles, there is something more important for Joshua to do, to be strong and resolute in obeying the law. Now, some of you noticed that I said something different there, strong and resolute. I've been saying strong and courageous this whole time. Why did you switch to strong and resolute, Chris? If we're to take, it's the, same, it's the same two Hebrew words in all three instances that you see here. But if you take the literal meaning here for the second one, what we say is courageous, it means strong or stout or firm. We've talked about this before. Words have a semantic range. So you could, you could literally say, be strong and be strong. That would be acceptable. You're allowed to do that. But what's more important for us is to understand the situation that he's using the words. So when it comes to fighting and battle, you need to be courageous, strong in that manner. But when it comes to this subject of law-keeping, it seems a little weird for us to say, be courageous in law-keeping. Now, if we're talking more about stout or firm or strong in law-keeping, I think a better translation for us will be something more like resolute. This is a, a specific way to understand this word as well. The reason probably you have it in your Bible is be strong, courageous, be strong, courageous, be strong, courageous. You're, they're trying to show you the parallels there. That's on purpose. But when we read it here, it's helpful for us to say, instead of if we get confused by the word courageous, that idea of being resolute in doing all that the law commands us. So that's the idea, like being unwavering, determined, purposeful in our obedience to the law. Okay, now God, back to God's introduction to this idea. Notice that God uses the exact same things we said. But then here, like, like he used be strong three times. But in this one, it's not the same way as we saw it at the beginning. There's not an exclamation point after courageous. There's not a period. Plus, he adds two modifiers, and at the end, adds an infinitive. I know that's nerd alert, Chris, but just stick with me for a minute, all right? You can see it yourself. The passage says, not just be strong and courageous. He says, only be strong and very courageous. But he doesn't stop there. This time, he is telling them to be strong and courageous to do something. He's applying the strength and resoluteness to a specific endeavor, the specific task that God is giving to him. He's saying something like this, only be strong and very resolute to be careful to do all of my law. Joshua is not a king. We know that. Joshua's not a king here. But at the heart of this passage, Joshua is told to act like a king. This is what I mean. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses told the people, that they would ask for a king eventually and that God would give it to them. But since he knew that they were going to ask for this in the rebellion of their own hearts, he had to put stipulations to understand what a king in Israel was to look like. He was not to look like the other kings that were around. He was not to amass horses and for, for military strength. He was not to amass many wives for political uh, advantage. He was not to amass much resources in gold and riches to rely on. Instead, he was called to one thing. I'm going to read it to you. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. 
This is what the king of Israel is supposed to do. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left. Start to sound familiar. So that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Joshua's not a king, but he is called to lead the people into the promised land and very much act like one in one sense. And so doing, God is telling him the same things that he told that what a king is supposed to do. He is supposed to write, he's supposed to read, to learn, to keep, to do the words of the law. If you're familiar with Deuteronomy, or at least the Old Testament story, this was true for everybody. Everyone was supposed to keep the law, to do all the commandments. In fact, so much so that in Deuteronomy 6, we see Moses tell them, you need to do this for your children's sake. You need to teach them from a young age. I'm going to read you from Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9 and verse 17 so that you get the feeling. This is to all Israel. This is not to just like a certain few different people that they zoned out. This is to everyone. Verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of our fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey." Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, you sh- and, shall walk, and shall talk of them. And you shall sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then 17, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. God's people are called to thoroughly do and keep the law of Moses. But you'd think that a king or a leader or a governor, when he is being told by God he's going to lead, would get some sort of extra training, something like leadership training, some management training, something that would be over and above. Maybe something that, you know, you could really rule God's people well because they were given this training. Hardly. Instead of extra information or extra training, God tells Joshua that the key to success is found in diligently doing the law. Look at verse 7 and 8. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will will make your way prosperous, and then 
you will have good success. God tells him that doing the law is like walking a certain path, almost like the person is on a journey through life, a path that is sure and steady, one that a believer does well to stay on, not turning from the left or to the right. And then he gives him some real practical advice. We would ask, how should I do this, God? He says, don't let this book, that would be all five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, don't let this book depart from your mouth. In other words, you should speak these things to yourself, to your neighbor, to your family, to your children, to your friends. Teach them and preach them and discuss them so they're always on your lips. How else? You should meditate on it day and night. In other words, all the time. There shouldn't be a time where you're not meditating on Scripture. The picture here is even of a person who thinks and considers the text so much that they dream about it. And that when they wake up in the middle of the night, they remember these things and think on them. And instead of the things that the, that the world and your own crazy mind and the devil would bring in and flood your mind, whether it's temptation or whether it's some sort of suffering or some sort of depression, we would meditate on the Scriptures so that at all times we are meditating on God's Word. Also, just for a clarification, this is not a meditation that we do at like a yoga studio. This is different than that. We're not talking about clearing your mind from all the noise so that you can have ultimate consciousness. That's not what we're talking about at all. When he talks about this, the Bible is talking about something different. He's saying take the law and focus on it. Chew on it. Ask questions of the law. Try to answer those questions with the law itself. In fact, this term is actually meaning to do it in some sort of an audible fashion, almost like you're mumbling as you think these things over and you're going back and forth and, and, and you're meditating on them, which makes sense. He said, don't let it come out of your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Joshua is to be totally immersed in the law. And if he will do so, God tells him he will give him good success. He will be prosperous. And what begins to happen, you kind of see the development of a picture in front of us of a prosperous person who prospers because of the law and because of obedience. It really begins to look a lot like what Jordan read us earlier, Psalm 1. You know this psalm. I'm going to read it again because I don't want you to miss what he was saying. What does the blessed man look like? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in all that it does, it prospers. Joshua 1 says the same thing. He's saying the exact same things. He talks about meditating on the word day and night. And then he gives us the very same result. Look at verse 7. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. Or at the end of verse 8, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The person who's careful to do all of the law, who, is, who has it on their lips, who meditates on it, this person will have good success. They will prosper. But before we take and make our own definitions for prosperity and for uh, prosperousness and, and, and success, 
I'd like, to, I'd like you to consider a few things. God is not promising or telling Joshua that he will have great wealth or that he will produce many offspring or that he will have all the things that the kings of the land have, all the stuff. God is telling him something totally different. If you study these two words in uh, the Old Testament just alone, some 120 times, you will find that they are always tied to one main thing. Now, there may have a little bit variations here and there, but they're always t- tied to one main thing. And it is, not, it is not financial gain or worldly treasures or resources. The thing that they're always tied to are the ever-present, gracious hand of God. His presence. In other words, to succeed or to have prosperity is to have God as the one who is in your life. He you having his presence in your life is a mark of prosperity and that you will be successful in all that you do, the things that he has given to you to do. What is Joshua looking for? He wants to know how to succeed. He wants to know, Lord, how do I bring these people? I mean, it was Moses, for goodness sake, who I'm trying to live up to. How am I supposed to do that plus lead them into this land and conquer all these people? We've already talked about they're, they're more numerous than we are. They have more technology. They have better position. I mean, they have everything. And how do we succeed in this endeavor? And God comes along to make sure he understands. Let me give you a few thoughts on this. Joseph prospered in Potiphar's house because of God's presence. Abraham's servant succeeded to find a wife for Isaac because of, get this, God's presence. Jeremiah speaks of wicked people not succeeding because God was not with them. Daniel and his friends succeed in the exile. Why? Because of the presence of God. In the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, God's people had successes in rebuilding the city and the walls because of the hand of the Lord. All those places I just told you talk about prosperity or succeeding, and they're all tied in those passages to the presence of God. Over and over again, we see that true success is success in doing the things that God has given to us to do. And this only ever happens by the presence and power of God. Again, like I said, Josh was asking the question, how do I succeed, Lord? And God comes and says very carefully, you should be careful to do all of the law. Joshua, you have the scriptures. You have all that you need. You have the law. God's revelation of himself to his people. God basically told Joshua, read your Bible and memorize it and think about it and go to Bible study and talk about it with other people all the time. Love it. How are you going to do that? Well, let me give you a few specifics, Joshua. Make sure that you not only speak it all the time, but meditate on it as well. This passage may specifically be for Joshua, but don't forget all of the other passages that we've seen throughout the Scriptures that shows us that a pursuit of God's Word, God through His Word, help us understand who He is. And they are the ones that help us understand that we also have the presence of God. So the question for us is, do we actually believe what we're hearing today? Is this actually the truth? That the most important thing for our success is to pursue God through the Scriptures. Do you believe that the only one to actually get any better at what they're doing is obeying God and knowing Him is to read, to memorize, to think about, to discuss and study, to meditate on the Bible? If you do, then do it. This is an easy one, guys. 
Real simple. Read your Bible. Know our Savior through the book of His Word. We have 66 books that tell us all about this God. Meditate on it. Instead of the things that go through your head, stop and say, God, could you help me meditate on those couple verses I thought about or I read this morning? This is like pretty simple application. I don't have to do a lot of crazy jumps here. We must read. It must be on our lips. We must meditate and think through the Scriptures constantly. Uh, So God told Joshua to read and obey the Bible. We are told to do the same thing. It's not new. But the question I also want to ask is why? If we're going to go back to the cake-making analogy for a moment, this is where the analogy completely falls apart. All Kristen can do is leave me good recipe cards that has all the information on there. She can tell me how to do it, give me every step, but those recipe cards don't give me her magical abilities in the kitchen. I can't do the things that she can do. I'm trying to borrow her wisdom, but I still have to do it. So I get in there and I try to do it off these recipe cards. This is not true for Joshua. God's word is not like a recipe card. It is not your recipe for a good life of prosperity. Like I can say that, but I know that you hear it other places as garbage that says if you, if you follow God's word, you're going to have a lot of money. If you do these things, then you're going to have a wealth and you'll have health and it's all going to be so good for you. That's not what he's saying. He says meditate on my word so that you might prosper in every endeavor that I give to you because of my presence. My analogy breaks down because Kristen's little, little recipe cards is not like the word of God at all. God's word proclaims God to us and our utter need for him and how then we can know him. It's incredible. Not only looking forward to Jesus, but as we look back and know our Savior through this and his presence and his Holy Spirit's work in us, we have all that we need as we understand him. What grace. No wonder David talked about the law as sweeter than honey. Because why? Not because he was a good rule keeper. Joshua isn't called to be like the best auditor-like rule keeper of all time. He's called to know God through the word. It's the revelation of God to man. What other way are you going to get to know God? Yes, general revelation speaks who he is. Psalm 19 showed us that. We know that. But a beautiful sunset and the trees and all the natural wonders cannot save us. They only proclaim claim how good God is. But here in his word, he teaches us of himself and how he has interacted with man and calls us to himself. Yes, it tells us how to live. It tells us all kinds of good things. But don't forget the heart of the law. The whole thing hangs on what we read earlier. Yahweh is God alone. You must love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. So before you jump into thinking that, again, Joshua is some sort of great rule keeper, don't forget that all that undergirds the law is the character of God. And the most important thing Jesus said out of all those different commands is to love God with your heart, soul, and mind. That, that, that makes everything else hang on that command alone. God knows that Israel will face a terrific group of enemies. I mean, again, like I said, they're stronger, they outnumber them, weaponry, position, technology, etc. But Israel's most formidable opponent is not the Canaanites. It's not at all. 
Israel's most formidable opponent is themselves. Why do you think he doesn't start here? Well, like, kind of expecting him to start this way, he would say, okay, I need to get chopped down all these trees, get all this wealth, get all these horses, make sure you do all these different things, train your men in all these different ways. That's not the most important enemy. If they have Yahweh on their side, all those things will fall into place under his guidance and his presence and his sovereignty. But what he starts with is the far more, more important thing here for us to understand. It is all about them understanding that the worst enemy for them is their own wicked hearts. It will be a physical fight, but even in the opening paragraph here of Joshua, we realize that there's a more important, a more important fight, a fight to obey, a fight to do what God has told them to do. And we will find that the battle of the Canaanites with the Canaanites is certainly the Lord's battle. He is the one. But the more important battle in the book of Joshua is the one for the heart of the people. And that's not done in Joshua. We see this battle going on and on and on until today. The same battle rages on. Because so badly, we want to rely on the things that are around us. The clever tactics, the resources, uh, friends, name it. I don't care. They're all idols. And they will all let you down. Only God's presence will be the thing that gives you great success. Brothers and sisters, be strong and resolute in being careful to do all the commands of the Lord. Read it. Meditate on it. Speak it so that you might love the Lord your God, the Lord our God, with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind, and so that we might then have good success. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. I pray today that you would lead us. I pray that we would be serious about this, Father, not, not as though uh, we, we, we put another duty on each other that we need to do, 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 but rather we'd see that we, according to your word, get success and knowledge of you and your presence by knowing you through your word. So, Lord, we ask that you would come and work in us and we take this pursuit seriously. I pray now, Lord, as you lead us into the Lord's table, that we enjoy the bread that we enjoy the cup as it speaks of you as we commemorate your death. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.